Welcome to Driving Performance. I'm your host, Tom Shea, uh, the co-founder of Agile Media Group. I am joined by Eva Goykochea and Matt Molnax. Um, guys, thanks so much for being on Driving Performance. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. So I start with the same question I ask of everyone, because uh, there's a lot of audio-only listeners. How would you describe uh, this set and what is happening right now? Okay, we're in a box next to Madison Square Garden. It's a, a fishbowl. Yeah, we're there's a, a lot of cords. We got Mobile earlier. Okay. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, Mobile vibes. Mm -hmm. It's also freezing outside, yeah. so it's a little... It's an ice box. A little chilly in yeah, here. Yeah, it's an ice box. <laughs> well, cool, guys. Um, so I wanted to start with just like, do you guys know each other? How do you know each other? Is there a story there? We, we know each other. We've known each other for four years, and we can't remember how. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're uh, pretty sure we met for breakfast with, like, a broader group pre-COVID. But, I mean, since we've done drinks with partners and whatnot, so we, we've become pretty close over the years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So cool. traded a lot 6 of 6 a.m. texts about, yes. you know, the worries. Yeah. I know I he's it. up early, so. <laughs> yeah, you, we're going to, you know, we're going to do Bloody Marys, but Matt, put the kibosh right on that. All right, well, let me introduce you guys and what you guys do. So, Matt Mullinax, co-founder and CEO of Huron, the internet's best-selling, hardest-working men's uh, products built from personal experience and decades of formulation expertise. Huron was founded in 2018 after Matt was struggling to find what worked well for his skin and that something that wasn't too expensive. So he made a brand assortment of A-plus products that looked, acted, and performed like higher-end products, but at a price point that didn't break the bank. Huron has won many awards from places like Men's Health, Grooming, and Esquire. They've also been featured in publications like the New York Times, Forbes, GQ, and Huron is currently sold directing to him on their website and Amazon. And then Eva Goykechea, um, the founder and CEO of Maud, a modern sexual wellness company built on quality, simplicity, and inclusivity. Since its launch in April 2018, Maud's been featured in Vogue, The New York Times, Fast Company, and some other 1,700 plus publications. We're gonna, we're gonna dive into that <laughs> strategy soon. Um, Maud was one of Circle Up's 25 uh, annual award recognizing some of the most innovative consumer brands in the market. It's part of the Leeds Foremost 50 in both 20 and 21, but one of the best consumer brands in the market and one of the 45 most powerful brands in WD, WWD in 2020 has been heralded as redefining sexual, sex essentials industry for modern consumers by Forbes. The company launched in Sephora online in 2022 and now in store in 2023, which Ooh. we're really excited about as the first sexual wellness brand ever carried by the retailer. So I want to set the stage here and talk a little bit about the structure. We are in a truck, and so there's going to be a few different uh, stops along this route. And so we're going to start with um, stop one, which is going to be the origin story, sort of what has made Eva and Matt and how you guys got here today. Stop two, I've come up with some specific questions um, re relative to your individual backgrounds and the businesses that you operate. Stop three is going to be some like intersectionality questions where essentially one question posed to the both of you. Um, ones that were sort of thoughtful and like maybe you guys will have different takes, similar takes, things like that. And then step, stop four is a segment we call the hot box. Um, and we'll dive into it when we get there. <laughs> the irony. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah right. <laughs> it's the cold box, actually. And then stop five is the literal end of our app. And uh, we'll wrap and, and talk about where people can find you. But let's dive into it. So stop one, origin stories. Matt, um, want to go back to you know your history. I know you're from Cincinnati. Um, and I want to talk about all of the sort of defining, like, pre-Huron experiences that you've had that led you to where you are today. Yeah. Uh, so, like you said, originally from Cincinnati. Um, I feel like there's an irrational pride for Ohio. Like, when you meet people, <laughs> Ohio, people love Ohio. Ohioans outside of Ohio, they're like, no, I'm from Ohio. Yeah. Uh, so, originally from Cincinnati, went to Brown University for undergrad. Graduated in 2008, moved to New York, and had aspirations of being an investment banker. Um, Same, not, by the way. Yeah, maybe not the greatest time to kick off a career on Wall Street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so quickly realized like maybe that was not my life's calling, um, and started to put some feelers out there, and ended up meeting the team at Bonobos, uh, who were a team of four or five at the time. So I ended up leaving investment banking to join a men's pants startup. Is that like uh, Bailey and Dunn at the time? That's exactly right. Dave Eisenberg was the first hire. So, it, I mean, it was a it was a really lean team at the time. Um, but for me, it was a tremendous experience. It kind of cut my teeth in early stage, what was D2C, um, but really being close and operating alongside of the customer, which became really a driving force for Huron. Yeah, and we had Emmett on earlier. I mean, that was like the time. I think that's when digital was really starting coming to the for forefront. Sure. And there were no acronyms, right? There was no DNBBs, there were no D2C. Like, it was, a, it was a mouthful of marbles to explain to people what we did. It's right. like, hey, we take these really bright, kind of awkward men's pants, we sell them on the internet. Right. <laughs> like, there was no quippy way of kind of introducing that. 
Uh, but it was an amazing experience. I was there for about two years. Ended up moving to Chicago. Oddly enough, got back into banking. Um, and then spent three years at a consumer private equity firm where we invested in early stage internet brands, kind of like a Bonobos. Um, and coincidentally, I found myself spending a lot of time in the beating cosmetic space. And I think for me, what was super compelling is, you know, you pick out a brand like a drunk elephant right. um, who was crushing at the time. I mean, Tiffany is such a boss. The packaging was amazing. The product was incredible. Yeah, sick. yeah and, and I thought that like the, my equivalent was to walk into CVS once a month and either buy the neon green Dove for Men or the neon blue Dove for Men. Right, so there was right. just so much opportunity to be had. So kind of made professional earmark as something that this would, you know, this is a space that I could revisit at some point in my career. I think on the more personal side was I was just the kid that grew up with bad skin. So I spent more time reading labels of Clearacel and Clean and Clear and OxyPads and like you name it, I tried it like 10 times. Yeah. Um, even did Accutane twice, which was horrible both times. Um, and even in the last year when I was working in, in private equity, I had a boss tell me, he's like, hey man, like you, we can't bring you to these management meetings anymore until you like fix this. This so being like how good your skin looks now. That was not the case for a really long time. So um, that was like really obviously like not a great motivational speech, but totally. kind of behind the scenes, like a nudge to figure this out personally, but also professionally. So. Ended up going to, to business school, and right before business school, walked into a quote-unquote like premium or prestige, prestige store, spent way too much money on face wash, and for whatever reason, the product worked. So the thought was, how could you kind of create or unify these two disparate worlds of super high-level technologies, efficacious ingredients on the, on the product development front, mixed with an audience that was either just starting to figure it out, didn't know where to start, or like me, had seemingly ripped through all the options, couldn't find one and was ready to throw in the towel. Right. So timing wise, fast forward a little bit. I mean, this was kind of 2017-ish. Um, and I started to tinker around with what would a site, a brand look like. So worked with two of my classmates at the time. Um, we built a fake site. I started running fake media for this fake site all across the Midwest to get a sense of, you know, could a guy in Cleveland or Columbus or Cincinnati or Pittsburgh or Charlotte or Kansas City spend a few bucks more on body wash than what he was currently buying at CVS or Walgreens. Um, so we stood up that fake site. We ran that experiment for about three months. Um, the there's no product no product at this point. And, right? and you know, and conversely, I was actually getting hate email because I, you know, people would run and be like, your site sucks. Like I'm trying to check out. <laughs> like, I, I can't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure we put a, a, a cutscene of the first landing page. Oh, it was so bad. It was so bad. We weren't winning any uh, Webby Awards by any means. Um, <laughs> But the idea was to pull data points to see if there was really an opportunity to be had. So we had a lot of great success doing that. Ended up moving from SF back to New York. Met my co-founder here shortly thereafter, uh, whose also name is Matt, which makes things easier or more difficult depending on the conversation. Um, but Matt's background is in product development. So he spent 25 years at Estee Lauder building products and brands, quite frankly, underneath that umbrella. Um, and he is just such a guru when it comes to development, product marketing, product, that it was just a very natural fit. Yeah. So we, how, did, how did you meet him? It was a good question. It was a, it was a mutual um, Stanford connection. Um, okay. He had done some consulting for the private equity firm where this guy worked, and I had reached out to him a few times kind of when I was thinking about what to do after graduation. Um, so he paired us up. It was supposed to be one of those 30-minute coffee chats that ended up going like five hours long. And I was like, oh my God, like this is, it's 4 p.m. Yeah. Um, I remember meeting him at Thunderbird. He's like, I'm Matt. I'm a co-founder for him. I'm like, no, you're not. I, <laughs> yeah. I know Matt. Yeah. He looks nothing like you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, he, he's really been the driving force behind all of our products. But, but really more so than that is how we think about like introducing the products, talking about the products, et cetera. Uh, so we teamed up early 18, worked on products, brand, raised some money, launched mid-2019. We've kind of been off to the races ever since. Yeah. Um, we're predominantly two channels, so just our own e-commerce store and then Amazon. Um, and we're a super lean team today, so we're only five. Yeah. Um, and I think that, and I think that that's an end result of kind of seeing how things were done at Bonobos. Not right, wrong, or indifferent, but we would hire in troves, and then six months later, not all those people would be there. Mm -hmm. I think our model's more kind of inspired by like the RX Bar model, who I, I also know those co-founders quite well, which. I mean, they were maniacal around keeping things, mainly OpEx and headcount, like really, really low, but finding the best possible talent to sit in those seats. So yeah. that's kind of been like our team inspiration. Um, and yeah, that's kind of the, the not so uh, short-winded answer. Yeah, of, of no, that's great. On. And if I'd, I'd love to hear your story. You have a, a, a really cool one. Um, you've seen a lot of different categories, been in a lot of different places, but 
Why don't we start all the way back <laughs> in, like, Sacramento era? Well, okay. So, I was born in New Mexico, which comes back around again. New Mexico is, okay. like, I think it's the 48th worst state in condom usage. I'm a great aunt many times over. I'm 40, so just to give you an idea of what's happening. Um, anyway, moved to Sacramento when I was 10. Came to New York to go to FIT. I wanted to be on Madison Avenue. Right. Moved here two weeks before September 11th. Uh, FIT throws you like right into the deep end right. and you have to reapply after two years and so I was like Really? Yeah, so they're like, okay, you're specialized, but now you have to specialize further You have Honor, to decide if you're, yeah, you have yeah, to decide if you're gonna go into marketing for fragrances or whatever And I was like, I'm gonna go home to Sacramento for the summer. I'll be back. I just kind of need to regroup right. um, I did not come back <laughs> till many years later. Uh, I went to Sacramento thinking I might transfer at that point and then ended up staying, got a job as a legislative aide, finished college, I got my degree in organizational communication, and I loved the capital. I didn't want to be in Sacramento by any means, right. um, but I loved working there. So I was working for the California Medical Association, and before that with like a very prominent, well-known lobbyist who was like best friends with Jerry Brown. <laughs> so I'm like 21 in these rooms, and like these are titans. Uh, yeah, I can't even um, imagine. And I, I actually have the weirdest story side note. I was in my first lunch with my boss and the entire team and my boss who's like at this point 65, he had an, his eyebrow was like just sticking out and I like reached over and touched his which is totally inappropriate. I'm very self-conscious about my eyebrows now. I know, they were like, what the hell is wrong with you? But that kind of started it. Right. Um, took a job in LA doing the same thing and once I was away from the Capitol, it was like, Either I'm going to DC or I'm gonna go back into marketing. I went back into marketing. And this was like early days of social media. So everywhere I was, I was kind of hitting a ceiling because I was the only one that knew anything. And I worked at an organic cosmetic company. I ran e-com early. It was called Josie Marin. But yep. they had gone to QVC and Sephora. And so it was like to run their own channel, which we can all talk about this later. It's like if you have those behemoths in your mix it's very hard if you haven't established your e-com channel already right um and i was on twitter one night which i hate twitter i was not even i don't know why i was on it and i saw everlane and i was like this brand looks great i really can stand behind this uh and at that point it was 10 10 basics under a hundred dollars right get on the phone with michael praiseman who's now still you know a friend i but love michael I, so <laughs> um he's getting married in hawaii and i was like i can't travel that far for you i love you but um <laughs> And he was like, okay, you're hired. And I show up and the office is in a art bookstore loft on Hollywood Boulevard next to a strip club. And I'm like, what on earth did I <laughs> sign up <laughs> And he was building the team around their creative director. So I was working with her. Okay. Um, Who was the creative director? Her name's Alex Spunt. Okay. Uh, and she, she was great. She came from American Apparel and her and I got along famously, but it was a really small team. Like we were under 10 people. And so that also is like where I cut my teeth. It was like early days of startups, understanding what was happening. It looked so similar to what Mod looks like now. Right. And then they were like, we're moving everyone to SF. I'd been there a year and a half and I was like, mm, I bought a house in LA. It was a cheap time to buy. Um, I'm married, I'm not leaving. Yeah. And so then I started looking around and I couldn't find anywhere I was excited about. LA didn't have like a booming startup scene at this point other than tech. Right. And so I started consulting and I was getting these gigs actually in in New York and I was coming here for Squarespace and Compass and all these really big tech right, companies right. and they're like, come work for us. And I was like, no, I think I need to do something else. I started a small watch company. One thing led to another and we started talking about this category. And I was like, wait a second, this is health. Sexual wellness is health. Design has never been at the forefront of this, but design might be the way to change the industry and potentially get a condom to that kid in New Mexico, right? Right. And I was like, okay, let's do this. And so in 2016, I sold the house, moved to New York. I was, you know, I wasn't as smart as Matt, so I didn't go to Stanford, I didn't go to Brown. <laughs> I took an online Harvard course. Um, <laughs> and I just started like learning everything about startups. I raised money in 2017, and then we launched Mod in 2018, and today is its fifth birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Amazing. Um, Talk to me a little bit about Tinker Watches. Uh, you know, we had a lot of people on the show that have worked with family, and there's there's been a lot of different takes. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, Kim uh, from Omsom, you yeah. had uh, Chris from Crossnet, you had Anouk who's working with her husband. Um, what was it like uh, building Tinker Watches, and what did you learn from it? 
So Tinker was like, it was Ian, my husband, and two designers and I, and we were like, let's just do this thing and we'll make watches that are affordably priced and Ian's a mechanical engineer, we can design them. And, and if you don't raise money in watches or in a category that's like quite expensive to acquire a customer, you just can't do anything. Yeah. So it was like the little engine that could, but it just quickly became like, this is untenable, we can't. So it, it still exists, you can buy a watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we just couldn't do anything with it. And once we started talking about mod, I was like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go put everything in this. And everyone else was like, we don't want to sell condoms. We can't tell our grandma this. And Ian's an engineer and was like happy working. He w This wasn't even his full-time job anyway. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, and so how, talk to me a little bit about like the Genesis 4 mod. Because you had all those like very interesting, diverse experiences um, sort of at the forefront of like the digitally native era. What made you want to go into this category specifically? It's like I said, it started from a conversation, but all of a sudden it hit me. Like it really was a light bulb moment. And I was like, wait a second, this is like my life's purpose. Like this, for all of the things I saw when I was younger, for everything I've kind of experienced in and around the state capital and what I saw in terms of disparity in communities with access and like conversations around sexual health and the stigma and all of this, I was like, I kind of, this is it. This is, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, but I also was like, how has no one ever taken this on before? People have tried, there's like plenty of, you know, there's plenty of companies, but the timing wasn't right for a lot of them, you know? Um, and so the, the timing for mod has ultimately been perfect. Yeah, absolutely. And, and mod has such a beautifully, beautiful branding, such elegant design. I know you had experience uh, in production. What, um, how did you think about going to market is specifically in a category that, I don't know, felt like just stuck in like a, a different <laughs> era. Yes. Uh, like the accessibility, you know, can you speak on, on the, I guess also the stigmas associated with that? It was, my thought, especially coming from like basically design school was design can, can lend itself to changing the category. It's, you know, sometimes design doesn't mean anything to people if it's not an emotional category, right? But in this case, it means everything. Because if you can sort of be inclusive of age and gender, make people feel comfortable talking about this with their partner, whatever yeah. it is, like you can, you can do something. Um, so the approach was like Matt, although you really couldn't check out, but it was like we launched a landing page a year in advance. We started getting press, we reached out to people, and then we did a survey and we got a bunch of feedback. We didn't show them anything, we just gave this. So it was almost like 670 people responded within a week and a half or something. And all of the feedback, 98% of people said, I do not identify with this category. There are no brands that I feel really strongly about. Right, yeah, I, you know, I don't know why all the sexual wellness products are like neon pink, like neon purple, right? Well, that's what I was gonna say, like outside of Trojan that you would buy at like yeah. CVS, right. like my interpretation of a sex store or sexual wellness is like Joe's XXX right. off the highway right. when it's I'm so driving aggressive. from Indianapolis to since, you know, yeah. there's nothing else yeah. and everything is neon pink or red or yellow. And I think there's such an awesome design aesthetic to what even yeah. even. Yeah, well, and I think it's also like, the reason I said the timing was right was because wellness was happening already. So people are more willing to talk about this. And I think in your case too, like grooming for everyone and for men is, is had its wave and Matt nor I might have been able to like make this work if it wasn't a different time. Yeah. And so, you know, you guys were both sort of the same like digitally <laughs> native uh, era. Um, and you talk- Selling pants. Yeah. You're both like, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like you, you guys speak pretty fondly or uh, yeah, fondly about your previous experiences at um, Bonobos and Everlane and you talk about your teams now you talk about Ever, uh, Maud being sort of like um, what Everlane was when you joined it and you talk about Bonobos and they had like hired a little too too quickly and you saw things you maybe didn't like but how did those influence sort of how you've built out the team now that things have been growing uh, pretty aggressively well I, I I don't think it's any surprise like that Everlane had some culture stuff happen and, and the New York Times covered it and Michael called me and was like, tell me your thoughts because, so I was there running social media and then no one was running culture or hiring and I was like planning our retreats. This is why I have Founders Weekend now, right. you know. Um, Can't wait, by the way, plug, yeah, Founders Weekend. Yeah, Weekend. Exactly. But it was just like, no one was paying attention to people because the leadership team, they were just building the business and there were so few of us and 
so it taught me a lot about like planting the seeds early even if you're going to be five people or in our case like 13 people whatever if you don't sort that out early it can become the thing that you know sort of it, yeah it's the implosion of the company in some ways yeah what about you Matt? yeah i was gonna say i mean i had the utmost and still do have the utmost respect for andy and brian i think what they built early days at bonobos was so different and i think the two things that really stood out to me was was one hiring really smart people, have them buy into the mission, and then figure out where they're gonna generate the biggest ROI for the company. Like, yeah. you might be really analytically strong, but you're best suited here, because for some reason, like, customer X resonates with that or whatnot. Right. And then secondly, it's just the focus in and around CX and customer experience. And I think Bonobos was one of the early examples of uh, demystifying like what what is it like a like oh that's perceived like a low level job of customer experience and really putting it on a pedestal of like this is actually the most important totally. part of our jobs on a day to day experience. Yeah. So I think like that shift of importance w was pretty differentiated at the time. That's something we really try to infuse into Huron. So I think for me those are just two big data points that I've really drawn inspiration from. Kind of looking back on on early yeah. Bonobos days. Awesome. Alright, guys. So. Stop number two on our route. I have some specific questions for you guys, which I'm excited to ask. And I want to start with Eva. Um, launching in Sephora, what, 200, 260, how many doors? It's 264. 264 doors, making you the first sexual wellness brand ever to launch in Sephora in its 50 plus year history. Um, there's there's so much to unpack there. But first <laughs> off, congratulations. Thank I you. mean, that's, that's epic. Um, can you sort of talk about just like how that came to be. Was that something that's been in the works for a really long time? It, 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 on the surface, it, like, it seems like a really strategic business decision for them. Obviously, they looked at you as the person to be the one to like actually start to crack it open for them. But I'd love to just hear how that came together and then we can sort of like drill down on, on specifics. So first, I always thought like if this doesn't go prestige, and when I say that I mean like within the beauty world, like if it doesn't go prestige first, then it's gonna lose, it's gonna be commodified. There's a lot of startups in this space and they've gone mass really quickly and that's totally one play and you know, that's great for them. But for me, I'm like, I'm trying to change the, the context of this category. I need people to feel like they have a choice for it to be on par with like other things that they really care about within their personal care and beauty routine right so it needs to be in a prestige place i i wish that sephora had i mean i actually do have a male audience because we are almost 50 50. i've always found that so interesting too. yeah but um for us it was like that's the partner they're gonna they're gonna set the right tone they often are the ones that innovate within beauty and wellness and then you know the rest follow like we need to go there the funny thing was that it wasn't Sephora US that called us first it was sephora <laughs> europe wow <laughs> and they're so like hey i had no idea um However, you know, a lot of our products are class two medical devices and they also have stringent, you know, Matt knows this too, like they're really stringent in other places with cosmetics. So we couldn't go there. But one thing led to another and Sephora US came calling and so they launched us online a year ago and then told us in December, 2022 that we were launching in store in March. Oh man. So well, we were like, okay. That's a mad bitch. Yeah. So it's been, a, it's been a bit crazy. Yeah, and so, um, so it started with Sephora, UK calling you guys. Europe, Europe, and they're they they actually didn't have UK yet, but they just bought a company in the UK, so now they have UK. Got it. And so, f from their perspective, like, was this always in the cards? Have you had have you had long conversations, early conversations with them, or is this all something that's come together pretty quickly? The conversation was like it was a year before we even launched online, so it's been going on for a while. Meanwhile, we were getting asked by bigger retailers here to go in, and we were like this category, this section of your store is not ready. Like right. we don't want to be thrown on the shelf literally next to mail depends, like no way. Right. Um, and we were also in a bunch of department stores, like we were in Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom, Neiman Marcus, Saks, we launched in Selfridges in the UK. So it was like, we need to, we need to stay in our lane for a bit. Totally. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I've, I've always thought like you talk about the intentionality and the strategic nature of of being selective with those partnerships and not trying to be like every everything to everyone always. I think you have a pretty interesting perspective on sort of like the commoditization of the industry and I don't, you like dump like the discounts or anything like that, right? Sometimes there's, there's like, yeah. like brand degradation. So I'd love to hear your perspective on like keeping I don't know staying focused, I guess, and then not like degrading the brand. Um, whereas you know I feel like a lot of others in the space have, have taken a completely different approach. 
Okay, I'm gonna say something really strange, but you'll uh, understand. <laughs> I was talking to someone about like the Negroni, right? Or like yeah. the Manhattan. You can go anywhere in the US, you can go anywhere and find a good cocktail. And it sets like, it makes you feel elevated no matter where you are. The Negroni doesn't have to be whatever, the screwdriver. It doesn't have to be like, not to be funny. It doesn't have to be like a well drink. It's okay, it can exist in the same spaces, but with a bit of a different context and elevation. And I think about sexual wellness the same way. I'm like, you can have a drawer full of like crazy toys. It doesn't right. matter. But mod is about mood and setting the tone and intimacy and scent and all these other things. And it elevates the experience. And so we can be mass while also keeping who we are. Yeah. And I don't think that we have to sacrifice that. And I'll stand by that. I mean, look at like fancy soaps everywhere we all know, right? Yeah. So I think of keeping, it's not about brand degradation because we're too good to be in those places. It's actually about when they're ready, maybe, but it's not ready yet. Right. You see the beauty sections have evolved. They're beautiful in the Targets and the Walmarts of the world. Sexual wellness, not so much. Right, the infrastructure's just like no. not there yet. Yeah, and I think just building off that, I think one of the things that, that Evan and team have done really, really well that we're, that, that we've tried to do well as well <laughs> is think about uh, the intentionality of a lot of these really important decisions whether it was iOS or struggles kind of in the back half of last year with traditional paid channels, I think for a lot of folks, um, the perceived panacea of Facebook issues was to run into wholesale. And I don't think there was a lot of arithmetic done behind the scenes around how expensive, how costly from a time perspective and a capital perspective, um, just casually flipping on the wholesale switch can be right. and what the impacts are if things don't go well. Totally. And I think that's you know right, wrong or different. I think a decision that a lot of companies made um, as a kind of, as a result of a lot of struggles on traditional acquisition channels. And I just think not having the level of intentionality or the maniacal focus on who is the right partner and when, kind yeah. of underscoring and when, um, really can kind of create an amazing brand or potentially break one. Totally. Yeah. Something that I, I'm not just saying this to smoke up Matt's, you know, but something I really respect about Matt and I feel like we see eye to eye on is like focus and purpose and integrity. Right. And it's not that neither one of us believe that our brands can't be huge. I think they can, but it's like, we're not going to just cut corners because totally. we know there's risk and we know that it could all fall. So I feel like we're both pretty steady and how we build things. Yeah, and it's hard to like, you know, not just chase the, the shiny object around. And totally. I think I see it a lot, like brands all the time are like, okay, now we're nationwide in Whole Foods, and it's like, you're not ready for that move. No. And if you can't support it, like you're not gonna last through that reset, and you probably don't, you might not have the capital, you might not have the team, you might not have the infrastructure, and then what happens, like, it's it's like one step forward, and then they drop you, and then it's a, it's a huge rebuild for that organization. There needs to be like new buyers before you even get like another uh, chance at that opportunity. So, I, I also have admiration for the focus that you guys uh, you know woven through your business. I think a lot of that comes from like EQ, yeah, being around the block, like seeing startups early, like yeah, just just seeing totally. how those went. Obviously, they both turned into to huge companies, but look at the outcome. Totally. Great. So, so Matt, I want to turn it over to you. Some ex similarly exciting developments with a, a new move into fragrance, um, one that has already won awards. So it's a new category for you guys all together, if I'm not mistaken. I want to talk about how that product came to be, what led you there. I know your co-founder also, Matt, it, he has a bit more background in fragrance, if I'm not mistaken. So why don't you just take us through the evolution of moving into a whole new product set? Yeah, I mean, Matt's background is a lot more experience, uh, more so than a little bit more. Um, yeah. He is kind of like one of the noses in the category, which there are probably fewer than 10 folks who are kind of recognized as such. Like a sommelier-esque? More or less. I mean, when we rip through some of these fragrances early stages, yeah, you'll get the feedback no like, hey, at hour four, the middle note gets a little scratchy, and I think it's because of like the patchouli or the juniper. And it's like, <laughs> my response was, I thought it smelled good. Yeah. Like, it, it's just a different level of product development approach, and I think that has set us up for success, especially this product in particular. But I want to circle back on one of the things that Eva talked about kind of in their pre-launch strategy that we've really infused into so many touch points in our journey 
is leveraging customer data through surveys. And I think that's something that a lot of brands could benefit from immensely that don't do it currently. But we try and launch surveys at least quarterly, if not yeah. monthly. Is that like, the, was it Dollar Shave Club or Harry's that did the whole website, sort of like you did with the... Uh, I mean, Harry's had like kind of like the early single single hero uh, sign-up page, yeah. kind of yeah, pre-launch yeah, yeah, of their yeah. famous Is that where you've drawn that inspiration from? No, I mean, I, th I think it was also always just like, a, hey, we have, for some reason, we have like an irrationally engaged base. Like, totally. let's let give them a pedestal to voice their opinions. Right. So what started probably like Q2 of last year, we started teeing up surveys around what fragrances do you currently wear? Do you wear fragrances at all? Right. If so, why? If not, why? Which brands have you historically purchased from? What price points are you comfortable paying? We collected almost a thousand data points or a thousand survey responses from customers. And then we did phone interviews with like 50 of those folks Whoa. to understand like, how do you measure lasting power of a fragrance? Like what is the difference between an EDT and a cologne and an EDP in your mind? So an EDP Whoa, is basically yeah. like the most premium form of fine fragrance based on fragrance oil concentration. And what does EDP stand for? Oh, the parfum. Um, so that's something we knew we want, like we wanted to have the fragrance level to classify us as an EDP versus a cologne, so we could tell some of these stories, right? So, higher fragrance oil, fragrance oil concentration, higher price point from a cost of goods side, but that's kind of the value and the premium nature that we're passing on to the consumer. So, all to say is a lot of this work started well over a year ago right. to kind of understand buying preferences, consumer preferences, wearing preferences, etc., and then how we could think about transforming our scent profiles, which we knew our customers really loved. When did EDP launch? Uh, January 30th. Okay, and how has, um, like, it's obviously in a different category. How has supporting the product been, uh, has it felt super different from your your previous SKUs, or has it been sort of organic because of all, like, the surveys and research? Yeah, good question. Um, we thought that we had a, a decent marketing plan and around how we kind of uh, what's the right word, kind of like shift the existing customer from maybe traditional personal care products to fragrance, but being that we're now able to attract a new customer, which is a fragrance buyer, um, I think a lot of our initial expectations around sell-through and unit velocities, um, we uh, outkicked our coverage. Which is, is it good. so it's sold out? <laughs> it's, it's been selling very well. Okay, there you go. And Eva, you guys just launched sort of in a new category as well, in, specifically in the grooming space. Can you talk about the, the origin story of Genesis for moving into that space? So we think about mod in like, there's four quadrants to the, the whole flywheel, right? There's body and grooming, sex essentials, scent and supplements. And the idea is like this holistic approach to intimacy. So we've always thought, we kind of run through the list of like, would mod make that? Would it make sense? Would the customer understand? And if it doesn't, we throw it out. Right. This makes sense. It's like being prepared, feeling like you can take care of your intimate areas, all of that makes sense. Right. So we don't have any plans on launching like a bunch of products in this category. We're not pivoting to be like a grooming brand. It's just a complementary set of products to everything else we make. And we've had body and, you know, bath for a couple years. Yeah. And how would you describe those products, like functionally? So one's like a pre-shave oil and the other one's like a post-shave. Um, they're very small, you, they're, it's really concentrated, you don't need a lot, and, right. and you, you can use it anywhere. We recommend really for like delicate areas, whether it's like face or intimate areas. Um, and it's just been something that we've thought about for a long time and in the, it's basically like wash, we have the body wash, so it's that, then you do pre-shave, then you do soothe, and then oil when you get out of the shower. So it just makes like the whole set kind of make sense. Yeah, and those SKUs that you're launching, um, do all of them get to retail? Like how does that work for people who don't really know um, retail as well and how, how do buyers how do you think about SKUs on shelf is it like you start with hero products and you you, you jockey for more or like how does that all come together it's actually really it's been really interesting because when we first launched with the retailer um, they wanted devices okay and they were like we'll take devices then that went on shelf then we had retailers who were like we love mod but we're afraid of sexual wellness we'll take your body products we have body products also that become the way we advertise because you can't advertise sex. Right. So it, it's been totally oh, across yeah, the board. Yeah, and this launch in Sephora is not, it's, it's lubricant, the wash, and then the burn massage candle, but it's not the whole assortment. 
Um, we're on the next big thing wall, so we didn't get like that much space because obviously with a three-month turnaround. Um, so it varies. Yeah. We okay. have an Amazon business as well, and that's like predominantly condoms and loop. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, uh, you know, on the topic of Amazon, man, I want to ask you a question. I, I've talked to a lot of brands since starting Agile, and I've heard the bull and bear case for being on Amazon. And so I sort of want to hear from you, objectively, what do you think, play both sides, like what do you think the, the common perceptions are on Amazon on the bull case and the bear case? And then can you talk about how it's been so great for you, how you've navigated that and sort of hacked it? Because you, you are one of the most like prominent, um, at, le at least of the people I know, like one of the most incredible folks that have um, use that channel to, to move the, the brand forward. And maybe it's a the type of the consumer, but I'd love to just hear you talk about that. Yeah, um, you know, I think even taking a step back, I would say the tenor towards Amazon has changed pretty drastically yeah. since probably 2015, where to play the bear case, Amazon is brand dilutive, right? right? It's mm -hmm. not your channel, you don't own the customer data, mm -hmm. like a litany of reasons why Amazon is bad, bad, bad. I think what we've seen and why we've leaned into the channel, especially since, and we, we, I mean, we launched February 2020, so right before COVID, um, Amazon quickly became the world's most reliable retailer, Yeah. right? So you could get stuff in two days no matter what. Right. And I think for us, with a very dispersed audience, you know, last time I checked, I think it's like 84% of our customers are outside of New York and California. So right. we have customers mm -hmm. everywhere. Right, right, right. Um, and ours is a very functional purchase. It's like, I'm out of yeah. shampoo, I need shampoo. You go search men's shampoo on Amazon, you look for a combination of really strong rankings and a price point that makes sense. Yep. Right. And I feel that we fit that void and it's a buy. So I think for us, it just made a lot of sense objectively from a channel perspective, especially when, you know, during COVID when people weren't walking into a Target or a CVS or a Walgreens, like what are the other channels that um, could allow you to get the brand presence out there uh, and we didn't really see that channel necessarily as being brand dilutive. Yeah, and as someone who's n like never, you know, I don't have a product, and so I, I know very little about the process. Like operationally, what does it look like to to work with Amazon? Uh, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest decision you make from the onset is do you want to be FBA or FBM? So fulfilled by Amazon, fulfilled by Merchant. Okay. Fulfilled by Merchant is you basically house all the inventory at your fulfillment center and are essentially fulfilling the product as if someone would have placed an order on your website. It's just coming through Amazon. Benefits are you retain a lot of the margin that you would otherwise be paying Amazon. The right. downside is you typically do not qualify for Prime, so two-day shipping. Got it. Right, so right, once right. you get the Prime badge, then you're fulfilled by Amazon, but that means you're then sending product to Amazon. They are then distributing through their own Amazon network. Um, and you kind of lose sight of like where the product's at, but also you don't really know the customer data as much. You don't have that, that customer touch point. Um, but that's where you can really start to move inventory at a pretty substantial clip. Uh, so we made the decision early on, hey, if we're gonna lean into this partnership, like let's lean in all the way right. and leverage Amazon for what they're best known for, which is amazing logistics. Right. So let's take advantage of FBA and that's kind of what's what's been the driving force to our success. Yeah, awesome. And um you know, before before we had the cameras rolling, we were talking about AOV growth, um, average order value growth, and how you guys have been able to really pour gas all over that. Um, I love to hear sort of how you've operationally sort of figured that out. Is it like bundling? Is it like operational improvements? Can you just speak on sort of the progress you've made and things you've learned? Yeah, a few things. I think it's a confluence of, of a few initiatives that we've uh, embarked upon over the past few months in particular. One is the launch of EDP. Um, it's a higher price point mm -hmm. good, so naturally that kind of rises the tide from an average order value perspective. Right. Um, you know, kind of the, the median price point across the rest of our set is probably 16 bucks. Okay. So the moment you introduce something at $55, that just substantially changes the arithmetic. Right. Um, secondly, we've done a ton on site to knob turn and dials and whatnot to figure out how can we objectively move this customer across the finish line the fastest? Right. Once we get them to the finish line, can we make product recommendations that make sense based on what the cart makeup is? Third, we launched a feature last July called BYOB, Build Your Own Bundle. Okay. Um, and we drive a lot of traffic to that page. And that's just like, hey, maybe you're a customer, Tom, and like you just don't use conditioner. So like you're not gonna buy the kit that's body wash, shampoo, and conditioner because you don't use 33% of the products. Right. So our goal is let you kind of choose your own destiny 
but then use product as rewards along the way to help increase that basket size. So once you get to you know 40 bucks, it's free shipping, 50 bucks, it's a free product, 70 bucks, it's a free dop kit. We're kind of introducing that gamification element, but leaning into products to do it versus just saying, here's 20% off, here's 25% yeah. off. So we're getting you to kind of expand your product palette as you build. Um, and that's been huge for not only initial AOV, but also retention as well. So I think it's kind of the confluence of those three things that have been really, really yeah. helpful. Are you, do you do bundling? Yeah. yeah, and that's worked really well for us. I think in our case, like, we're teaching a customer to think beyond a condom or a lubricant right. and a device. So having other products in the mix has been really helpful and our AOV has been bumped up tremendously. Yeah, how do you guys think about pricing strategy? Because I, I remember when we were launching Agile, we, you know, led with, it was a new format, so we were trying to have like this penetration pricing and, and get onto the map. And I think something we learned quickly, it, when we started to go to large brands, that they took the inexpensiveness of it, which was like an intentional design consideration from us, because, you know, we we're trying to, to build a category, and they ascribed a, like, oh, this is like, it's cheap for a reason. And so, <laughs> you know, I want to talk about, I think there's, pricing so interesting so to me, interesting. and I think it, it is for, it's something that probably doesn't get thought of as much as it should about um, by new founders. Can you guys talk about how you do like pricing research, how you've sort of found those sweet spots? Obviously there's like the basics, um, but there's also a lot of psychology, I think, embedded in it. We took 100 SKUs on Amazon before we launched and analyzed them, and then said, okay, where is in the middle, okay. essentially, because to that point, if you're trying to build a premium brand, but you really want it to be accessible, or you're trying to democratize the category. Right. So for instance, our like our eight ounce lubricant is a lot of lubricant. If you go into a drugstore, you can buy two ounce, mm -hmm. and it's like anywhere from 15 to 17 bucks. Right. But we're giving you eight ounces for 25. So actually it's way cheaper, right. but the margins are so strong that we can do that. We just don't talk about it in that way. We've made like real consideration around do not talk about price as much because it's going to cheapen the experience, at least in this category. Yeah. Um, they're already going to assign their own like feelings about it. So, but it is competitively priced. So when we en ended up on Amazon, it was like, it works. We're right. not, we're not yeah, so, so premium. Price yeah, there. exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think brands are always going to get the feedback, especially on paid social channels that unless your products have dollars, someone's going to be like, I'm not paying X dollars yeah. for that. Like that's ridiculous. I think we didn't put as much thought as Ma did clearly c coming out of the gates around how we wanted to price our products. We wanted like the Rolls Royce of product, but like at a right. Camry price point. <laughs> um, it's really tough to do, especially when you don't have economies yeah. of scale from a product development and MOQ standpoint. So in January of this year, we actually took up pricing, two bucks. And yeah. the leading driver for that was because we are dual channel, e-commerce and Amazon, we're allowed to price Amazon price points at a premium to our D2C channel. And our conversion rates on Amazon were so high that we were like, why don't we just match these price points? Yeah. I mean, in December of last year, our shampoo PDP on Amazon had a 33% conversion rate. So one in three customers were buying this product once they landed on the page and we're like, that's insane. Yeah. So like, insane. why are we kind of snipping our own Achilles on our D2C site by not having a similar price point? So we sent out an email to all subscribers and all customers saying, on this date, we're raising prices. Here are the reasons why. Mm -hmm. We got 87 customer service tickets back. 100% of them were positive. You're yeah. like, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Like, it's just nice to be transparent mm -hmm. about that. Like, right. Brand X didn't do that and raise prices. Right. So I think it's, you know, we kind of fell on the sword and said, hey, like, we've kind of swallowed a lot of these pricing increases along the way. Like, to stay in business, right. like, this right. is going to have to be something that we do. And I think people are, were, were very supportive. Like, exactly. I think people, it becomes more accessible as a brand. Like this person's not some like yeah. faceless yeah. brands, like with a bunch of like, I don't know, people in an office that don't give shit and they're just like, how much money can we squeeze from this consumer side? Right. Someone, there's, there's a person behind this. That's exactly right. That's um, exactly right. So I, uh, we're at stop three here. I have some brand intersection questions for you guys that I'm excited to ask. And um, I want to start with, Stigmas. I think it's really it's been really interesting. We've had a lot of guests on here. You look at the AAPI movement. You look at um, what you're doing with Maud. What you're doing with her on, and it's even like Jay from Midday Squares. Like they've taken a chocolate bar of like what's been Hershey's forever and found a way to make it better for you and like fight these stigmas. And so I really want to just talk about how those stigmas, like st it seems like 
this intersection of there is a stigma in society and there's someone with like extreme authenticity. We even had so from WME Endeavor talking about like what makes a good celebrity partnership with a brand. And I think there's definitely something there. So can you guys talk about the stigmas that you entered to combat? And then can we talk about like sort of how those stigmas have evolved over time and how you guys have sort of tried to normalize a lot of those things? So when I was, back when I was walking around the Capitol, literally hand-delivering bill summaries because they weren't electronic, um, I, I, I just realized like within this category or within health in general, there, there's a lot of stigma anyway, right? Because it's like th this idea of making choices about your body feels like it's always in the public conversation it somehow feels like it's been taken away from us right. um, and in this conversation in particular it's been dictated by what's happened in the category and I like I go on and on about this all spare you but it's like you know you had there was a time when this was just about like you know birth control and then there was a time when it was all about the AIDS pandemic and then it was actually about just selling sex in the 90s and the 20 you know, 2000s and 2010s, and so it's had all of these movements, and we've kind of accepted whatever we're being given. So now is this moment when we can finally say, wait a second, sex is human. Right. We should just have a brand that speaks to that. It doesn't have to be tied to all of these other health concerns necessarily, but in doing that, you can then affect change and conversation and normalize it in a way that makes people much more comfortable taking responsibility for their sexual health. So. It's always kind of been approached from this perspective of like, use a condom, you're gonna get pregnant. Right. Um, and we're like, it's taken all of the emotion and intimacy out of the category. And we were like, okay, let's just like regroup here. Yeah, totally. So for us, it wasn't, we're not explicit as a brand. We're not trying to get you to talk about your sex life publicly. This is not who we are. We're actually just trying to say like, it's your choice. It's your body. We're just here. Yeah, I, I'm sure that authenticity's been a lot of the brand success. What about you, Matt? I think simply put, like the at the epicenter of Huron is this notion of it's okay to care, yes. which for a long time, especially guys, there was like this weird angle of like, <laughs> like I don't care about that, or like right. I wore the shirt like four days in a row, like yeah. okay, but like that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so a lot of the taglines we've even riffed around over the past three and a half to four years are kind of centered around helping guys look out for the man in the mirror, like helping you look, smell, but more importantly, feel better about yourself, right? So when you break it down tactically, and what it means in context is, we're not trying to change this person's life necessarily. Like right. we're kind of like, hopefully a little bit more pragmatic about the journey, but if we can give this customer a little bit more pep in his or her step before a board meeting or a big presentation or a first date, like yeah. that's a massive win for our that's brand. Right. And I think it's that it's stacking those small daily wins is kind of how we approach personal care more broadly versus trying to like project something that's like way too far beyond what we are. It's kind of like understanding like, hey, we're here to help you like get the day off started right. And yeah. like if we can do that, like that's a huge win for us. Yeah. Okay, Matt is downplaying this, but I think we probably both take the approach of like you, we will change something over time by focusing on the day to day, right? right. And so like, I think these are both category game changers, but we're not declaring that they will change everything right, yeah, right yeah, away. Yeah. Totally. You know, you put in the work. Yeah, and I mean, look at Starface. Like, I, I love that brand. <laughs> I mean, taking something that for so long was like a, a stigma and like trying to, um, I don't know, just talk about it and think about it differently. So I, I've loved what they've, you know, Brian over there's done. He's he continuing to do it. Yeah, it yeah. makes complete sense. And it's interesting how often this like concept of stigma like those seem to be where the opportunities are something that's for, for so long has been talked about or thought about incorrectly probably because of like some societal norms or, or influence but well and I think the commonality too is the signaling of like it's okay yeah is is the critical piece totally and that's owned by our customers that's not owned by us right yep. right you can I mean you can fight that fight but at the, at the yeah. same time you need those people for the for it to actually affect change you need those people sort of fighting on your behalf in my opinion. Well, and we make the joke to go back to Matt being a wide-eyed banker in training. Like, there are people who tell us, you know, we have a customer every age, gender across the country. Totally. Um, but when they're like, yeah, my 23-year-old, like, investment banker brother has mod 
in his you know house because he thinks it's really cool. I'm like, okay, that's now we're getting somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's the signal. The adoption of Made the it. young yeah. heterosexual male. Totally. Yeah. Okay, so um, you guys have both raised venture capital. Eva, you are one of um, ten Sad. Latinas. I know yeah. it's, it's depressing, but also like dope. Um, and, and I think you know you're part of changing that narrative. And we had um, you know Kayla from Algo Bonita is a good yeah. friend. Uh, we had Sandra from No Polera on in a previous episode. She's the best. Yeah, she's awesome. So um, I sort of wanted to dive into just like fundraising philosophies. How do you guys think about the need for capital, use of capital? Matt, I know you. I've always known you as someone who's intentionally stayed very lean. You're probably formed by a lot of those early life experiences. So can you guys just sort of speak to um, what it's been like raising capital and, and how have you thought about the need for capital in what is a, a pretty capital intensive business? My fundamental philosophy in and around fundraising is you need to seek the intersection of value add plus capital. I think what we've learned over the past, especially six to 12 to 18 months is there are a lot of check writers out there who mm -hmm. can sit on the sidelines and just be purely capital providers. That's totally fine. That's not hugely beneficial to me or to us. Like I like getting in the weeds with a lot of our investors who are oftentimes more ex operators themselves. Right. And for me, like that's the perfect intersection. Someone who's seen the playbook, executed against it, mm -hmm. had some successes, but can like talk about here's how you hire a director of ops, or here's how you think about running a successful out of home strategy, or right. how do you think about managing Facebook ad spend and budget? Like those are vantage points that you're never gonna get from traditional VC. No. I also think there's a more empathetic approach towards wanting to help. Right. I think there's a more empathetic approach towards time. Like for instance, like I had a email exchange with an investor that I really like the group, but this person's canceled on me five times. And I'm like, at some point, like, no, I don't yeah. want to reschedule because like, turns out my time is also important. Opportunity yeah, cost. Like, and like, if you want to chat at 4 a.m., like, let's go, like, I'm, I'm up. Yeah. Um, but, but you don't really get that from yeah. folks who have been in the seat previously, who right. have like, had oh, an I exit and- I haven't heard back in 48 hours. Yeah, like it's, fuck this guy's not taking it seriously. That's not what's happening here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I think that that level of buy-in, where it's not purely just mm -hmm. financially driven, for me is like really really important. And that's kind of how we've how we've built our cap table today. Yeah. We have a lot of investors, and I think some of them are you know huge funds that just like wrote a check and thought this will be interesting. Let's see where this pans out. But we all know here that you know. They bet on 10 horses and no, nine of them are going down. Okay. So for us, and I think Matt and I have talked about this a lot, like I didn't come from a family that was gonna write me a check to start this business. Right. Um, it was do it yourself, this is, you know, and so I knew that I had to raise capital. And every, we've had great investors only because the category is so, it is so stigmatized, it's so difficult, and it's yet, you know, it's still nascent. So the ones that bought in early, like they actually really believe in it. And now we're at round five or something, but the people that are the, the prominent bigger investors who are on the board, for instance, like really believe in what we're doing right. and see like the bigger picture and they'll get in the weeds with us when needed. So for all of the hurdles we've had, it's like actually weeded out the people who are gonna be just useless. Yeah, totally. And so I you just know, had a tweet the other day that was like normalize friends rounds versus <laughs> friends and family. Oh, I know. Yeah, like like you, I, mean, I was not getting many checks from. Totally. Yeah. My grandma maybe sent me like twenty bucks. Yeah, with know. a birthday card and like yeah. two pieces of gum tape. Yeah, yeah on a good card. day, that's like one customer card. Yeah. But hey. <laughs> All right, guys. So um, I think something that's really interesting about the intersection of your businesses is they both deal with the largest organ, which is skin. Um, and I wanted to sort of demystify for people listening just like what goes into product formulation. You talked about it like with, you know, Sephora from um, Sephora Europe calling you and like all these regulations. So what goes into product formulation? How do you test products? Like what do those cycles look like um, for anyone who's like thinking of starting a business in these spaces? So we actually now have a chemist on the team. On the team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. She works on regulatory requirements and then also chemistry. So she's the one formulating. We come up with something. She's like compare, you know, comparing brands in this space. But we're all. She's also a vegan, <laughs> which is really, it's really helpful because she has very, very high standards, right. as we all do. But we're very bullish on body safety. 
Um, and even though we have some products with fragrance, we're not telling you to put those products where you know you shouldn't. So I think what we've noticed is that there hasn't been, there's not a lot of regulation in our category. There are a lot of people who make intimate oils and sort of they, they kind of infer that they can be used as lube, which they really shouldn't be. So right. we're pretty strict about how we think about product and um, and that comes from what we're doing you know within the team to say these are our standards and then when it came to working with Sephora it was like they want us to be at the clean program they want us to like right. you know so we had to just <clears throat> continually make sure that the products that we were creating were going to be universally accepted as clean body safe etc and how do you think about standards when there aren't as many in the category do you try to position as like setting the bar yeah and it's <laughs> i had a text exchange with an investor who was like integrity doesn't make you smart and i was like i'll go dying on this yeah. guy like i i you invest in the wrong I, company I was like, yeah. don't do it but yeah i mean i'm not gonna always lead with th there have been some brands that lead with scare tactics like you shouldn't be using this product and i i don't want to lead with that i, I do want to sure. raise the bar but i want to make this something that people can learn about on their own so there's a lot of product information there's we have these 101 guides on our site like we're we're pretty um thorough about it that's kind of i want us i want the customer to know that we have standards and we don't have to like scare them away from other brands right. by having those standards yeah, so that makes sense what about you i think for us we try to manufacture to sephora clean standards so even within the industry there's multiple different yeah. Um, standardizations, if you will. There's Credo Clean, there's Sephora Clean, all around the thesis that let's develop where the industry is going mm -hmm. versus, versus where it is today. Okay. And I think even for men's, it's like step functions away from a Sephora Clean or a Credo Clean. So we're always thinking about um, what does it mean to be, well, we are 100% vegan, leaving bunny certified cruelty free, but like what what is on the precipice for this might be an ingredient that we might need to next from the formulation list. So we're constantly having those conversations with regulatory. Um, but for us, like that's just a, a line in the sand that we drew pretty early on that we wanted to formulate to meet some of these perceived higher value, more premium standards so that we could, um, you know, live up to the, the product quality standards that, that we envision for ourselves. Yeah. And how does, uh, how does like product development and manufacturing, like co-packers, like how do you guys think about product development from a operational tactical perspective? Yeah, I think at scale, I mean, I, I had a conversation with one of our earliest angels about this. He's like, well, why don't you just make this stuff in your kitchen? I was like, because I don't want to fry your face off. Oh my God. <laughs> like th th this is not a few almonds and dates and like simple syrup. This is like right. legit Special chemistry. Right. Um, so identifying a contract manufacturer early on who is willing to work at mm -hmm. low MOQs with you, but can also scale with you over time is something that's really, really important. But at the highest of levels, what, we, what you're doing is you're basically putting together a product brief, which is eight, 10, 20 pages long over, this is what I want the product to do, this is what I want the texture to be, this is how long I want it to last, and you're kind of on paper etching out what the product will look, feel, smell like, Got and it. then it's kind of the chemist's job to bring it to life. Yeah, how about you? Same, I mean, having someone in-house is like incredible, and we've had a senior director of product who's been there for four years, and he ran it before that. So we take it, it's like the number one, most important key hire times internally. Okay, so I um, I want to talk a little bit just about marketing mix um, and how you guys have sort of thought about marketing in, in sort of, I don't know, the different pieces. Um, so if you guys could just talk about that marketing mix, like, and I, I think I'm most curious about how you think about acquisition marketing versus like brand marketing versus like education in a stigmatized category. And, and so I'd love for you guys to speak on that. So we did what everybody else did to, to start, which was try to just go into performance marketing. I think for us, we realized that given the cadence of how people shop, it's not a, like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. We actually turned off Facebook last year. Okay. Um, and we had to navigate the hurdles of, of sexual wellness on Facebook, which is like impossible. <laughs> uh, but we focused on press and earned media so early on that we developed yeah. those relationships and that's what's been, you know, we've built out affiliate, we have influencer, um, and we have Google search plus right. content. So our content drives a ton of traffic, but yeah, it's been really nice to turn off 
Yeah, that's I mean that's crazy. Yeah, we're still addicted to the drug, so yeah. we're, we're we're still on Facebook. Although I will say, probably the past ninety days for us have been the best Facebook performance we've ever seen. So mm -hmm. it's been super interesting and exciting. It's it's, it's very it's interesting, right? The wind blows like it's very month, volatile week by week, month by month. It's, it's very volatile. It's very on. dependent on creative. Um, yeah. you know the. the there's a number of, of important inputs for sure, but I would say we're more traditional kind of performance mix, so across Facebook, Google, Amazon, and then um, kind of our MER ratios, so marketing efficiency ratios, ultimately drives. E explain that real quick for people who don't know it. Yeah, so it's basically just total oh, yeah. sales yeah. over total marketing spend. Yeah. Um, it's, a, you know, it's a pretty simple ratio, but we have an internal threshold that we have to be yeah. at Same. to say, okay, here's like our slush fund of performance plus brand spend for the month, so long as we're within these parameters, like, let's do what we want to do. Yeah. Um, how I think brand, brand spend kind of permeates our PL, uh, like, we have a line item that's just called making friends, where our social and influencer and brand manager, like, will send 50, 75, 100 packages out a month just to get products into yeah. the wild. Got and it. I think that's really, really important. Does that, you know, are there constraints or confinements around what is this expected to drive in terms of sales? Not at all, it's not for that at all. But right. it's about kind of the aura of creating like a brand presence and awareness that's really hard to quantify. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so last question on the top three here. I uh, want to ask just where you guys hope your brands will be or like what, what sort of impact or legacy do you hope that Huron and Maud leave respectively uh, when you look back at it in a couple of years? A couple years. <laughs> I expect that we created the new standard and that the rest will follow. I think if you're if you're thinking about this like skincare, like I said, imagine that there's no prestige. We expect to be the first prestige brand and lead the charge. So I want to see sexual wellness look like skincare. Yeah. And and we talk about everyday sex versus sex every day. Yeah. I, I'd love for you to speak on that <laughs> real quick. I think everyday intimacy, we say intimacy for us is like, you can, you know, our supplement does really well, like feeling your best every single day is important in terms of having any sex life or feeling like you wanna think about that at all. It's so highly affected by sleep and stress and being on your phone all the time. So we're not telling you like here, go have sex every day. We're right. saying like, feel your best every day and sort of the rest will follow. Love it, yeah. I think it kind of simply boils down to the, if, if we can give our customer the confidence and yeah. the vehicles to take care of themselves in a better way on a daily basis, that would be amazing. And I think kind of focusing on that like very tactical, idealistic world, hopefully the financial outcomes will take care of themselves, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, like when you boil things down to first principles, like that would be the ultimate win for us. All right, so we're at stop four now. It's a game called the Hot Box, aptly named after the set that we put cold together box. here. Yeah, the cold box. Ice box. <laughs> the ice box. Um, and so it's gonna be like a rapid fire Q&A, this or that, uh, modeled after the hot seat. And so I'll have you respond first, Matt, I'll have you respond second. But the goal is to, is sort of you just gotta pick one quickly. You don't think about yep. it too much and you say whatever comes to mind, all right? Got it. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Cold plunge or hot tub? Hot tub. Cold plunge. Beach house or ski house? Ski house. Beach house. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. Sunrise. D2C or DTC? D2C. T. <laughs> T. T. Yeah. Neat or messy? Very neat. Neat. Corgi or golden retriever? Golden retriever. Golden. Winter or summer? Winter. Summer. Tennis or golf? Tennis. Golf. Pineapple pizza or candy corn? Pineapple pizza. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, candy corn. I love candy corn. All right, hot day. Uh, live music or DJ? DJ. DJ. Live in water, I'm oh, sorry, live underwater or live in space? Live in space. Underwater. Fight one horse-sized duck or a thousand duck-sized horses? The first one. <laughs> horse-sized duck. All right, there you go. Sweet snacks or salty snacks? Salty. Sweet. Call, text, or audio notes? Audio notes. Text. Reading or writing? Reading. Reading. Work remote or work on site? On site. <laughs> on site. We're both big on site. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, rather do laundry or the dishes? Laundry. Laundry. Uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok? Oh, God, all of them. Instagram. Oh, probably Instagram. Dancing or people watching? People watching. People watching. Really? All right. Cocktails or beers? Cocktails. Beers. Feel too hot or feel too cold? Feel too hot. 
Kill too hot. You get one animal to protect you against a horde of zombies. I don't know who writes these. Uh, gorilla or grizzly bear? Grizzly bear. Grizzly bear. Give up bread for life or cheese for life? Bread. Bread. Air guitar or air drums? Air drums. I played the drums. Okay. Oh, wow. Fun fact. Fun fact. I'll go, I'll go you get drums. a cutscene of you just no. rocking it. <laughs> uh, board games or video games? Board games. Board games. $50 on red or black? Red. Red. Start early or leave late? Start early. Start early. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Where do I go next, Europe or Asia? Europe. Europe. Rich and famous or rich and anonymous? Rich and anonymous. Anonymous. Playlists or podcasts? Playlists. Who about podcasts? Cardio or weights? Weights. Weights. Pancakes or waffles? Waffles. Pancakes. Really stressed about that one. Yeah, there. I mean, <clears throat> speak to animals or speak ten languages. Speak to animals. Ten languages. Netflix or YouTube. Netflix. Netflix. Telepathy or teleportation. Teleportation. Tele I don't want to know what people are thinking. Yeah, yeah, no way. <clears throat> trucks or billboards. Billboards. What Just kidding. Trucks. <laughs> trucks. <laughs> trucks. <laughs> billboards on trucks. <laughs> billboards on trucks. All right, we'll take that as an answer. Receive good news or bad news first. Bad news. Bad news. All right, well, the bad news is we're at our final stop here. And, uh, guys, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me on season one. Um, as you heard, some of the most talented operators and founders uh, at the top of their game. I'm really excited to see what's next for your respective brands. I wanted to give you guys a chance to uh, let the audience know where they can find you, where they can find your products, your brand, and um, we'll wrap from there. Well, if you can spell it, it's Eva Gorgotia <laughs> um, on Instagram or LinkedIn or wherever. Uh, and it's getmod.com because we couldn't get just mod. Matt Molinex on Twitter and Instagram and useyearon.com. And where can they buy you in retail? Uh, there's a long list, but you can go on our site and look at our stockists. Our Sephora. Our Sephora. Sephora. Oh, God. All right. Sephora. But starting tomorrow. Starting tomorrow. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go check out Sephora. Let's do it.